Hello and welcome to Getting Naked with Happiness with me, Stephen Liu. Each episode, I bring you psychological tools to build your success and mental wealth, whether through powerful stories of resilience from around the world or in my series on coping with COVID-19 with Jaitsia, gain insights into human flourishing and learn tips to break the limits on your personal growth. Today's guest is an expert in organizational compassionate leadership. Yes, compassionate leadership. She cares on bringing empathy to workplaces and looks at how inclusive a workplace can be or should be. Roslina Chai is a passionate advocate for organizational inclusivity. She is currently the managing director of a corporate consulting advisory and training arm of one of Singapore's largest non-profit social enterprise for advocacy and research on gender equality. What I really admire about Roslina is her desire to respect the dignity of every single person she meets. And this desire is also the driving force behind the impactful work that she does. With her experience in implementing inclusive organizational change, I wanted to pick her brain on how we, whether as employees or employers, can contribute to a healthier workplace for everyone. We spend so much of our time at work, and I think it is important to set good foundations in our workplace culture so that we can feel fulfilled in our career. So let's jump right into this discussion on how we can overcome marginalization at work. Can you give an example of what an inclusive work environment looks like versus a marginalized work environment? Perhaps I can start with a marginalized work environment because that is something Unfortunately, I think most of the listeners can relate to. A marginalized work environment could feel like, even though I love my job, I love the impact it creates, I go to work with different degrees of fear. I fear to make a mistake. I fear to really share what I think. I fear to take risk. I over agonize over details because I fear being reprimanded. That kind of fear is the more subtle but more pervasive kind of fear that many people experience but have over time rationalized that it is just the way that work is. So those little marginalized voices in and of itself doesn't seem like a lot, but these are the kind of subtle, pervasive marginalization that over time and with enough people feeling that way, reinforces a corporate culture where the half-blind is leading the half-blind. Small mistakes that could have been nipped in the bud become major disasters. And then everybody starts asking, why didn't someone say something earlier? So that's one category. 
Then you have the kind of what I consider the middle ground marginalization based on assumptions and unconscious bias. For example, it could be that the leader of a company is a very outspoken religious uh, figure or has a very public stance on a very controversial issue and is very good at sharing that opinion, perhaps in an attempt to seem inclusive. But the louder that voice is, and if that leader doesn't know how to listen, it's not uncommon for employees to assume that if my leader is XYZ, it means that because I hold a completely different view, such as I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim, um, I'm gay, I'm not straight, or I'm straight, but I'm not gay, then I don't feel safe enough to voice out that difference, which is a very core part of my identity, right? So that would be what I consider a little bit more obvious, like everybody kind of knows there's an elephant in the room, but no one wants to be the first one to say anything. Then there is the outright marginalization, and this manifests in comments such as uh, those Indians, those Chinese, those Angmals, right? Mm. Sometimes it is offered as a joking manner and very often it is by certain employees with some kind of status in the company. And if that kind of behavior is not called out, and when I say called out, I don't mean confront and in an accusatory manner, but for that person to be told, hey, have you considered that maybe this kind of comment could be exclusionary? Then over time, it becomes a corporate culture that creates an in-group and an out-group, right? Mm. The other example, the more visual type would be a certain ethnic group liking to hang out together they start WhatsApp chat group together. And in their enthusiasm, some of your behaviors may escalate into what others perceive as exclusionary, if not sometimes intentionally harmful behavior. So those are the more obvious kind of marginalization, right? So this is to answer your question, what does a marginalized workplace look like? Mm. On the other side, what does an inclusive workplace look like? In its simplest definition, if I could attempt one, it is one where even if these three types of marginalization is going on, employees have sufficient confidence, they may still be slightly scared or tentative, but they have sufficient confidence to call out this kind of behavior at some level without fear of repercussions, without fear of it compromising your career development, without fear of being ostracized by their peers in the workplace. That would be the simplest definition. But the simplest definition behind it requires a whole army of processes and organizational culture that supports even the tiniest of seed growing. 
So I like to think about creating inclusive workplaces like planting seeds, right? For any one of us who have tried to plant seeds, that small, tiny thing, you bury into the sand and you have zero clue when it's going to grow. It seems to take forever, but all of that nutrient in the soil and the ratio of the seed to the amount of soil is actually quite significant, right? goes into feeding that tiny little thing. And when it has enough, it starts to send roots down. When the roots are strong enough, then and only then will you start to see the small little green thing tipping through. If you nurture that, you protect that. And I do think that it is a leader's job to have the patience to create that soil, to put the nutrients into that soil to plant the seeds and to wait, to sense when the roots are growing, protected. When the leader sees a small little tiny green leaf coming out, protect it, give it the chance to grow. And if you do that, you will one day get an oak tree, strong, sturdy. And all of this comes from one tiny seed, correctly nurtured. I, I love that what you said, Rosalina, and the, I love the metaphor of how you know, the seed could be planted and as leaders, you can prime the environment and prime individuals who to grow their talent and nurture what they are worth. And you did mention the part on how if the leader may be a little bit more outspoken or if let's say the leader is maybe gay, and uh, just giving the context of example here, then the, co the co-workers or the employees are not because they could not identify themselves with the identity of the leader. More likely, they may not speak up. And that may cause a dissonance or they may be repressed because they feel that they are not the same and they may not want to speak up. Mm. And in such a situation, which is quite prevalent, what would you suggest to the leader to take or to include so that they could start creating a more inclusive environment? I would like to offer three levels of attempting to address this kind of situation. The first level is if we have at hand a very charismatic leader who is a great orator and has many opportunities to share his or her opinion. That leader, no matter how much you want to think that is not needed, the only way that leader can be invited to change is through personal coaching. And the reason why I'm very explicit about that at the individual level, yeah, is there is enough research to show that power changes the neurobiology of a human brain. And the only way to counter the neurocircuitry that has been grown or encouraged by molecular responses triggered by a sense of power is to spend time exercising counter neurocircuitries and that is usually the most effective when the leader has a personal coach because the leader would feel, hopefully, safe enough to speak about certain things honestly. 
So this is the famous Einstein quote, which I'm going to very crudely misappropriate. You cannot hope to change a problem using the same tools that created the problem, right? Yep. So that's at the individual level. At the team level, and this is a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. One of the ways to counter the impact of power in an individual leader is to have a cognitively diverse, emotionally diverse leadership team that has ground rules pre-established that everyone on that team has permission to call out the other leaders and to hold them accountable to an explicit standard of professional and respectful behavior. Easier say than done. We are not talking about racial diversity, i.e. how many nationalities do you have represented. I'm also not talking about gender diversity. I'm also not talking about sexual orientation diversity. In the crudest sense, I'm talking about do all your leaders come from the Ivy League schools of the world? Because if they do, chances are they're going to be thinking quite similarly. So one of the more interesting experiments in ensuring that there is sufficiently resilient diversity at a leadership team is possibly class diversity. Do you have leaders who come from different social economic classes, right? Do you have leaders who are living realities that are dramatically different from each other that they can really bring a richness of perspectives? So even if you have gender equality, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, I mean, sorry, ethnic, I mean, nationality diversity, if everybody goes to the same public school, you're not going to have true diversity. As an example, I know that can be contested, but that's one way of reframing at the organizational level, and this is why it's helpful to study the way that certain countries have governance structures that is based on the concept of a triad, right? So every arm that has power has governance processes to ensure that the other two functions of power has the opportunity to balance the other one out. So there shouldn't be a situation in an organization where any committee or any group of people have so much power that they cannot be challenged by the processes itself. This is when you get to the organizational culture that unconsciously feels compelled to say that as a star performer, as a CEO, you are above the rule, right? Again, easier said than done. So three levels at which to address the situation of that leader which you share, Stephen. Thank you for the profound answer. I think um, what you said really makes so much sense, right? That we need to look at the whole situation and climate from different perspectives. And um, and like, I like the way you say that it's easier said than done because these are the critical events that's happening on the ground. And I think many of us who are listening in will have experienced such events in their lives. This leads me to the next question. It's about the, you said that 
there may be people who um, have started to create groups within themselves. We will use the word in-group or out-groups here. And at the same time, because the reason they form these groups is because they feel safe within each other. They can lean onto each other. Mm. And it's also very innate of human behavior that we want to form in-groups and out-groups. And we know that it may also create silo mentalities, right, within departments or within groups. And this is very common in larger organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so from an employer point of view or from a HR point of view, what can we do with this? Because it's so common, right? From an HR perspective, this is actually quite a dilemma. Because on one hand, I want to say, have a policy in place where your high potentials, at least start with the high potentials, right? Have an opportunity to rotate through different functions. So you don't get somebody who becomes a functional expertise and is very invested in the way that this, uh, in how things are done, right? Now, not everybody likes too much change. So the other side of the dilemma is to say, maybe we still want to do this rotation concept, but we can either on one hand say, three years or five years in a function and then you move, or you can do what some of the larger companies are doing, which is during the one year tenor, let's say we go by calendar year, X percentage of your time can be spent on anything else that you're interested to work in. Not in terms of how 3M and Google is doing it, as in, you know, go develop your hobby or your curiosity, but in a more structured manner, which is to say, have you ever considered what your marketing colleagues are doing? Do you want to do a short internship there and just kind of see, right, as an example? When I was just out of college, the concept of a management training program was very popular. And back in those days, the economy was still good. So a lot of money was invested in it. I think it is an extremely wonderful concept to take young graduates who are eager to learn and put them through different functions in a structured way and help them make the learning explicit. Now, Management training programs have become expensive and over the decades, I have noticed that it has become even more meager. And in many cases, is I don't think it's really a management training program anymore. However, I know there are corporates who took this concept into mid-career change. So there may be opportunities available to the 30s to 40s, high potential, who's been with the company for a while and say, are you interested to rotate functions or to rotate countries? So I think it's not just about rotating country that is critical, it's rotating functions. Because there is so much ingrained territorialism in some of the older companies that unless you break, in your words, Stephen, that siloed thinking, this is my territory, this is a way that we marketing do it, it's very difficult to get intra or interdepartment organization. And getting together once a year at an annual dance and dinner is not enough. Mm-hmm. The other way of trying to create that cross-function fertilization 
is to make available opportunities for people to sign on to alternative projects that are more innovative in nature, right? So it is an agile concept of quickly banding together to solve a problem and then disbanding and solving another problem. And the problem in the best case scenario should be a problem that the employees themselves have identified need solving. Slight deviation. I've always found it curious that we employ people for their strength. We take out money from the company's treasury to pay people's salary. And then we suppress their creativity and excitement. When in fact, I think if you trust your employees just that bit more, everybody comes to work wanting to do their best. Don't you think, Stephen? Mm. So if we just unleash that creativity and that willingness to do their best, I'm curious what amazing innovation can actually happen because employees on the ground are closest to the customer. They're closest to the stakeholders. They actually know what the problems are and what brings our stakeholders delight and joy. So that's a slight note. Wow, wow. That's a lot of insights into the topic of marginalization. And I'm really impressed at how you can explain the different situations and strategies in a step-by-step -step way. Just to sum it up for our listeners, we spoke about three things. Number one, we first spoke about marginalization, how there can be explicit, middle ground, and more subtle and pervasive forms of marginalization. Number two, how there are three different levels to look at in order to have a more inclusive environment where employees can feel safe to speak up. So there is the individual level of the leader, the background diversity of the teams, and the organizational level. There needs to be structures in place to allow checks and balances between leaders and employees. And finally, we also look at how we can address the issues of cliques or in-groups and out-groups per se by allowing greater flexibility in a company. That's really a lot of in-depth knowledge packed into 20 minutes of information we have spoken so far. So now what we have done for the listeners out there, because we know not everyone has the luxury of time, is to split up the rest of Roslina's insights into smaller segments where we discuss more specific areas of organizational improvements from the perspective of inclusion. These snippets are just around 10 minutes long and full of even more novel ways to approach organization change. So I highly, highly recommend going through each of them in your own pace. I would like to thank you, Roslina, for giving so much time and energy to helping us understand how we can grow our own seeds of changes in our workplaces. And for listeners, do give a shout out to our Facebook or Instagram or YouTube at Getting Naked With Happiness. Thank you and see you next time.